The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Meni Chazanov now presents his lecture, Masora, the tug of war of halachic development. This topic is a fascinating one, a vast one, a complex one. We're going to be focusing on specifically the principles by which the halachic system advances and progresses. So just to relate a story that exemplifies this idea. The Talmud in Tractate Menachot relates that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, when he ascended to Harsinai to receive the Torah, Moses found Hashem tying crowns onto the letters of the Sefer Torah. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before. And because in the Sefer Torah, if you look at the letters, there's little crowns. Moshe says to Hashem, Mi ma'akiv al yadcha. Who's holding you back from giving this Torah as it is right now? Why do you have to add on these small crowns? So Hashem says, let me show you a vision. So Hashem takes out his Zoom, his little app, and uh, fast forward thousands of years, and Moshe Rabbeinu is in a classroom with Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a Talmudic sage, and he was giving over a shir, a Torah lecture. Moshe Rabbeinu sits in the back, and he doesn't understand a word that Rabbi Akiva is saying. And he's distraught. This is supposed to be the you know, the descendants of the Torah tradition, and he doesn't understand anything Rabbi Akiva is saying. So Moshe Rabbeinu listens a little further. One of the students asks Rabbi Akiva, what is the source of this halacha that you're saying? Rabbi Akiva says, it's a halacha Moshe misinai. This is a halacha, this is a law transmitted to Moshe from Sinai. And Moshe relaxes, Moshe Rabbeinu relaxes, and that calms him down. So this story is trying to highlight the paradox in halachic development. On the one hand, there is radical innovation. On the other hand, it's somehow all sourced in Sinai. So what we're going to look at today is the principles by which halachic system develops, what element is divine in that development, if any, and what element is human. And we're also going to examine key terms in halachic development, okay? And the terms are interpretation. What is halachic interpretation? What is halachic truth? How do we define halakhic truth? What is tradition and controversy? These four terms. Okay, so we have Torah Shabiksav, the written Torah, the text of scripture, and then we have the oral Torah, the Torah Shabalpeh. The Torah Shabiksav is written as ink on parchment, which we've carried with us, and the Torah Shabalpeh is the explanations, the expansions, our approach in learning Torah, our tradition in understanding it, and everything that we've added to it throughout the years. Torah Shabalpeh, we carry with us in our hearts, Torah Shabiksav on parchment. Now, this is a page of Talmud. I'm assuming everyone has seen one. The way Torah Shabalpeh works is you have the original text. Any, any subsequent and development of halacha, you have the original text, and then you expand on the margin. So this is a page of Talmud. I once heard a rabbi say, uh, say something beautiful. What do you think the most important part of this page is? Where's the most important part? You have the middle part, which is the original text, and then the super commentaries on the side. And then as Torah develops, there are more and more commentaries amassing on the sides. What's the most important part? Blank space. There we go. George knows. The blank space on the side, the margins, are the most important part, because that's where the student 
and the sage and the Jewish people have added their own explanations and in so doing expanded and developed the Torah. It's beautiful and cut right to the point. What is the essential difference between Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat? It leaps out at you on every page. So that would be controversy. In the Torah Shabbat, you don't see controversy. Even if you note a contradiction, it's not necessarily meant to be seen. It's, it's, it's presented as if it's a seamless text. Torah Shabbat, there's controversy on every page. Every page has different opinions. The question I want to ask today and I want to examine is where does controversy arise in the halachic tradition? If halacha is sourced in one source, Har Sinai, revelation from God, where does the different opinions all of a sudden result? How does controversy arise? Question number two is what are the mechanics of halachic dispute? And that's a very different question. And let's illustrate the difference between these two questions by looking at the following, the following sources. So let's look, take a look at source number two. This is a pasuk, a verse from the Torah I think everyone is probably familiar with. Teach it to your sons, speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on your way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is a pasuk that's referring to Shema. Shema is something that Jews have been saying every night and every morning for millennia. The word that describes the time for saying Shema is b'shach b'cha, at night, when you lie down. What do you think that word means? What does that mean when you lie down? What time precisely is that? It's pretty vague. When you lie down, what does that mean? So this is actually the first dispute in the entire Torah Shabbat. If you open up a Talmud, the first Mishnah, this is source number one, the first Mishnah is a dispute surrounding this exact term. In this Mishnah, in source number one, we have a few opinions. The Gemara explains that it really boils down to two opinions. We have the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer and the opinion of the majority of the sages of the Chachamim. Rabbi Eliezer says, B'shach means the first third of the night. Why does it mean the first third of the night? He interprets B'shach when you lie down to mean the time that people retire to sleep. Not the entire time that people are sleeping, but the period of time in the night when people retire to go to sleep. That would be the first third of the night in his opinion. The sages say, well, over here it says that the sages say until Chatzais and Ram Gamliel says the whole night, but really the Gemara later explains that they both agree that it is the entire night. Why is it the entire night? B'shach means the entire time that people sleep. So two plausible interpretations of B'shach One, when people go to sleep, when they retire for the night. The other, according to the Chachamim, the entire night. So the question I want to ask is this. How did this dispute arise in halachic tradition? Jews have, Shema is a fundamental tenet of our religion. It affirms the unity of Hashem, our love for Him, our giving it over to our students, to our children and our students, and we say it every night and every morning. How did this dispute arise? That's question number one. Question number two, even if it arised, by what halachic metric of truth do these sages presume to interpret that word? So what I mean by that is this. What gives them the license to interpret that word? Number two, how would they even know if that interpretation is a correct one? Halach is not like physics, where we could take a theory, bring it to the lab, test it, and see its efficacy. Here we have a word where we don't know the meaning, and I am interpreting it, and how do I know that that, interpre that interpretation is correct? How do I know if a halachic reasoning, if an argument, is a correct one? 
Okay. We are going to look at three models on the nature of halakhic discourse and dispute. These three models have each been espoused by a different Jewish sage throughout history, mostly clustered around um, the centuries, the 10th century, 11th century, 12th and 13th. So the halakhic period of the Rishonim, that's the medieval interpreters of the Torah. And each of these models have a, have a very different view of what halakhic truth is, what halakhic interpretation is, tradition and controversy. Um, the reason this is so important to, to, to learn and to discuss is because we have so much controversy and you know, Jews love to argue. So it's so important that we, that we discuss this because every time we approach a page of Torah throughout our lives and hopefully in the future, we will encounter dispute and we will encounter the act of interpretation and also the metric of truth that we aspire to halakhically. So we want to know what that is. So let's look at the first model. The first model is the retrieval model. And we'll understand why that is a logo for the retrieval model as we go through it. Okay, the first model, the retrieval model, can be also described as the Gaonic model. The Gaonim, which literally means the geniuses, the brilliant ones, they were the Jews who inherited the Talmudic tradition right after its canonization, right after its closing. So the canonization was either, the closing of the Talmud was 5th, 6th century, in the first millennium. From the 5th, 5th century to the 10th was the period of activity of the Gaonim. Rav Sadia Gaon, I don't know if you recognize that name, Rav Hai Gaon, Rav Shrira Gaon, these are all Gaonim in that, in that period. They lived in Babylon and they had um, two great Talmudic centers in Surah and Pumadisa. This rabbi, this sage, his name is Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud. He is not one of the Gonim, but he is a successor and an inheritor of that tradition. So he thought along their lines. He lived, he was from Spain. He lived uh, 1110 to 1180. And he wrote a book called Sefer HaKabbalah. If you look at source number three, Sefer HaKabbalah is translated as the book of tradition. It's not Kabbalah as we usually think of it, mystical Kabbalah. Rather, he's trying to trace the development and the history of Allah. He's trying to prove its accuracy and its veracity. What is his motivation? His motivation is the Karaite movement. Has anybody ever heard of the Karaites, the Kroyim? No. Yeah. The Karaites did not believe in the Torah Shabbat. Primary for someone like Rabbi Ibrahim Daud was to prove the veracity of the Torah Shabbat. So what he wants to do with Sefer Kabbalah is to show that everything in the Talmud and in the Mishnah was all sourced at Harsinai. This is his main move. So if we look at this source, I'll just read a little bit of it, and it's on, it's on that page. Um, the purpose of this book of tradition is to provide students with the evidence that all the teaching of our, of our rabbis of blessed memory, namely the sages of the Mishnah and the Talmud, have been transmitted, each great sage and righteous man having received them from a great sage and righteous man, going back to Harsinai, and this is his main point. Never did the sages of the Talmud, and certainly not the sages of the Mishnah, teach anything, however trivial, of their own invention. So this is a, a radical idea. Everything in the Mishnah and everything in the Talmud is sourced at Harsina. That means every bit of halakhic data that you find in Talmud and in Mishnah is really at Harsina and then given down. What that means is, is that all of halakhic knowledge, all of halakhic innovation really, at least until the Talmud, is not really innovation. The answers were all given, the truth was all known, and we are merely transmitting it. This he says to counteract and to undermine the Karaite challenge, who did not like human innovation. He said there really is no human innovation for, 
Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud, the difference between the Sefer Torah and the Torah Shabbat is nil. There is no difference. One is written and one is oral. But both have the same exact source at Sinai. Both are equally and purely divine. Now, what is the main problem that Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud has to deal with? Controversy. If everything is from Har Sinai, everything was given, all the answers were known, how did controversy arise? What he has to do is he has to posit a crisis in halachic transmission. He points to different Talmudic statements that seem to imply that many halachas were forgotten. Negligence, forgetfulness pervaded, and students forgot what their teachers had given to them. From that forgetfulness, the puzzle of halachic data eventually was erased somewhat, and halachic activity after that is meant to rearrange, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. If he's going to posit a crisis in halachic transmission, he's going to minimize it, which is exactly what he does at the end of Source 3. Uh, it's in bold. Our rabbis of blessed memory never differed with respect to a commandment in principle, but only with respect to its details. For they had heard the principle from the teachers, but had not inquired as to its details, since they had not waited upon their masters sufficiently. For the Ravid, the crisis is only in the details. Shabbos, Shema, there's never, been a, there's never been any forgetfulness with regard to that. What have we forgotten? What oil to light the candles on, on Shabbos? When exactly to say Shema? That's what we've forgotten. That's the crisis. But the, the, the fundamentals are all there. Now, for the Ravid, if we... Actually, if we, let's just look at source four. This is, this is one of the sources that he points to. Um, he points to a Talmudic statement that says that the students of Beishamah and Beishillel did not attend to their teachers sufficiently and they forgot in his mind. That means that they forgot a lot of the commandments and that's how, that's how controversy arose. For the Ravid, what is halachic truth? What is the metric by which we judge halachic truth? Very simple. Chronological proximity to Har Sinai. If there was a crisis, then the further removed you are from that crisis, the closer you are to the original source of halachic knowledge, the more familiar you are with the map of halachic data, the more license and the more right you have to interpret it. So for the Rabbi Abraham and Dawud, the reason why the Talmud even has authority is very simple. It's because it's closer to Har Sinai, earlier along in the crisis of, of forgetfulness. For the Ravid, what is halachic reasoning? Well, halachic reasoning is trying to see halachic data as a, as a map, as a puzzle. And basically, every halachic data point that you're examining, you compare it to other halachic data points. You try to look at it as a puzzle, and you try to put it together. That would be halachic reasoning. Tradition is very simple. Tradition is pure tradition and the most absolute tradition. Every piece of a halachic data was given at Arsina and transmitted, and controversy arose simply because of a crisis in the history of halachic transmission. This is the Gaonic model, the model of Rabbi Abram Ibn Daud. It's the first model that was ever offered in the history of halacha, and it is fiercely debated by his successors. So if we look at his main points, all of the oral Torah is purely divine in origin. Controversy arose because of forgetfulness and negligence. Halachic discourse in Torah study is an attempt to retrieve the original knowledge given at Sinai. Limited human role in halachic transmission. For the Ravid, halachic reasoning is really an ex post facto phenomenon. 
What that means is, is that really the original plan would seem to be no human intellect should be involved in halakhic transmission and discourse at all. We should take the halakhic data that we received at Har Sinai and transmit it. Memorization would be key. The idea of halakhic intellect, of, of, of the mind being involved in halakha, is an ex post facto situation. After the crisis, after we have forgotten and we have, you know, the students were negligent and halakhic data was forgotten, we now must use our reasoning to piece it all back together. But really, it would be an ex post facto situation. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not examining the, the difference, the legal difference between the rice and the rabbanon. Meaning, the rabbanon, there's a whole dispute whether rabbinic laws were given at Sinai or not. The Rambam actually touches on that. We'll look at his model in a second. But the legal difference is not as important. I'm more looking at the ontological difference. Meaning, what did revelation comprise and what did it not comprise? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, rabbanon could be, could be part of the original revelation at Sinai. And it could not be. It wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, differentiate the, the legal difference. So in a suffix de araisa, mechumra, suffix de rabbanon, lukul would not factor in. It wouldn't matter. Any other questions? The original oral Torah was taught by Moses, right? So after that, it started missing the pieces. Yes, yes, yes. More and more. So, so we have a sort of a, a top-down history of halakhic transmission. Everything was complete, everything was whole, the answers were all known, truth was clear, and then eventually it broke down. And the Ravid, Rabbi Abraham Mendawud, will say it broke down only with regard to the details. That's very important for him. Because he has to posit a crisis in halakhic transmission, he wants to minimize the crisis to only the details. So Shabbos, there was never a crisis. We always kept Shabbos our entire history. What did we forget? What oil to light the candles with? Shema, we knew we had to say Shema, the time, which we examined in the first, the time to say Shema, that was his, uh, that was the crisis. Okay, the next model is the cumulative model. The cumulative model could not be more different than the retrieval model, as the names might, uh, might imply. Um, this model is espoused by the Rambam, by Maimonides, who criticized and debated the Gaonic tradition in many, many ways throughout his life. This was one of the ways that he, uh, that he did so. He has an entirely different halachic system. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, Maimonides was born in Cordoba in Spain, and then he eventually was exiled, and he lived uh, most of his official life as a rabbi in Egypt. He authored monumental works on halacha, the Mishnah Torah, the, um, also on philosophy, Mo'en and the commentary on the Mishnah. This source that we're going to be looking at comes from his introduction to his commentary. There, he really sets forth his halachic model. So take a look at source five. So there's a lot there. I don't know if I'll read everything. I'll read the beginning. Know that each commandment that the Holy One, blessed be he, gave to Moshe was given to him with its explanation. God would say to him the commandment and afterward tell him its explanation and content and so too with everything that is included in the book of the Torah. Let's read the bold in the next paragraph. The explanations that were transmitted from the mouth of Moshe have no disagreement about them in any way. We're going to skip to the next paragraph just for uh, lack of time. Um, let's go to the end. Uh, he says, anybody who thinks that a student forgot or did not hear from his teacher everything he was supposed to hear, and they bring a proof, exactly what the rabbi brings as a proof, exactly what Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud brings as a proof, this Gemara that speaks about the students of Shammai and who did not serve all that was required of them, this thing is very repugnant. 
And these are the words of one who has no intellect and does not have the fundamental principles in his hand and who disfigures the people from which the commandments were transmitted. And all of this is emptiness and not. And what brought him to believe this faulty belief is his lack of cognition of the words of the sages that are found in the Talmud, as they found that all of the explanation that it transmitted from the mouth of Moshe is true, but they did not take cognizance of the difference between the transmitted fundamentals and the topical extensions that the sages extrapolated by investigation. There's a lot there. Let's unpack that. Okay. So the, Ram, the Rambam says, let's just focus on the first thing he says. A crisis in the history of halakhic transmission is repugnant. Why would that be repugnant? The main move of Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud is that halakhic transmission is pure, purely divine. In order to posit that, he has to say there's a crisis. For the Rambam, this is, this is repugnant. Why is that something repugnant? Because for the Rambam, he says that counterintuitively, the exact thing that Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud was trying to accomplish, he took down and destroyed by positing a halakhic crisis. By trying to bolster the halakhic <coughs> tradition, he posits a crisis in halakhic trans transmission. What that basically does is, it's, is it says, how do we know that this halakhic data point is accurate? For the Rambam, that is something that, that is completely repugnant. The main move of the Rambam is that what was given at Har Sinai was a kernel. That kernel was pure halakhic data, the text of scripture, the explanations of those verses, principles, fundamental principles, and that has never been forgotten. That has never been debated that kernel. Any argument you find in the Talmud and Mishnah perforce does not center around the kernel of halakhic data given at Sinai. In order to do this, the Rambam basically has to take the entire Torah Shabbat and say 90% of it was not given at Har Sinai, because 90% of it is controversy, as we explained with that uh, joke with Rabbi Cohen. There's just a kernel that was given at Har Sinai. Again, very limited amount of halakhic data. The text of scripture, explanations, fundamental principles. The rest is human innovation. The Rambam introduces the idea of halachic human creativity. Rabbi Avramim and Dao did not like this. Why didn't he want to posit this? Because he was trying to counteract the Karaite challenge. For the Karaites, human creativity is a no-no. The Rambam is not bothered by that. What would be an analogy for the Rambam's idea of halachic discourse, reasoning, and truth. I think an analogy might be Euclidean geometry. Euclidean geometry starts out with axioms that are absolute. From those axioms, from those mathematical postulates, we then derive new information. For the Rambam, that is exactly what happens with halachic discourse. We have axioms, a kernel, principles that were given in Har Sinai to Moshe. Those principles are absolute. There has never been any argument, no forgetfulness. They're clear. Throughout the ages, Jews have interacted with that. And from those principles, they have derived and applied them to new situations. And from there, we spawn new halachic data. Now, when two people, two Jews definitely, are looking at the same principle and they're trying to derive and infer new information, we're going to have controversy which is exactly how the Rambam accounts for halakhic controversy. It, there's no crisis in halakhic transmission at all. How does, how does controversy arise? Very simple. If I am trying to derive new information from a principle, let's say I say, um, let's say there's a law, cars can't go into a public park. So one were to look at that law and say, well, can cars go into a public school? That's a new 
case. You know, it's not in the law that was aforementioned. So, well, I can say reasons yes or no. You know, well, maybe no because it's dangerous. There are kids there. Well, maybe yes because I want parents to come pick up their kids. Controversy can easily arise when I'm taking a known and absolute postulate and I'm trying to derive new information. For the Rambam, what would the metric of halachic truth be? This is why his model can be called the philosophical model. The Rambam was a philosopher. He was a jurist, a doctor, a philosopher, a rabbi, a, a just a jack of all trades, but a master of all. And for the Rambam, halachic reasoning being correct, the metric of halachic truth, would be something that he philosophically termed a demonstrative argument. What that means is, is if you have a principle, an axiom that you're deriving new information, if that new information coheres perfectly with the previous axiom, then it is demonstrative. That is a good halachic reasoning. So what every sage is trying to do is they're trying to make sure that their halachic data that they're originating, that they're bringing forth with their minds, coheres perfectly with the halachic axiom. So it has nothing to do necessarily with comparing it to other halachic data. It's a, a, a pure halachic argument. You know, Socrates is a man, if all men are mortal, Socrates is mortal, kind of like that. For the Rambam, a very limited amount of undisputed, clear halachic data is sourced at Sinai. There is a kernel, and the, Ram, the reason why the tree is, is, this tree is a logo for him is because he actually gives that example. He says that the roots are the revelation at Sinai. The roots are these halachic principles that were given, and they, there's no, you know, the roots have to be extremely firm and, and, uh, and rooted in the soil. And then from there we grow branches, and there are inferences and derivations and applications of all that information. So a very limited amount of undisputed clear halachic data sourced in Sinai. Halachic discourse is the attempt to derive new halachic norms from received axioms. Controversy is the result of weakened intellect. The Rambam looks at that source that Rabbi Abram Ibn Daud brought, Misharabu Tamide Shame Behil, this is source four, Shalei Shimshu called Sarkon. He interprets it vastly differently than, the, than Rabbi Abram Ibn Daud. Rabbi Abram Ibn Daud said they forgot information. For Maimonides, they forgot no information. Their minds weren't as sharp as their teachers, and they did not understand the principles, the fundamentals, from which new halachic data is supposed to be derived, and for that reason, controversy arose. Maximize human creative role in halachic development. And Maimonides saw no problem in that. What would be a common denominator between Maimonides and Rabbi Abraham and Dawud? That controversy is a negative thing. For Rabbi Abraham and Dawud, controversy is the result of a crisis in the history of halachic transmission. For Maimonides, controversy is a result not in a crisis in halachic data, but in spending more time with teachers, trying to understand the principles as much as possible. That stopped, and there was a, a weakening of the intellect of the Jewish sages. Controversy is a bad thing. We would rather that Jews would agree. Okay, the next model is the constitutive model. The constitutive model is espoused by Nachmanides. Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, lived in the 13th century, and he was one of the greatest critics of Maimonides. From Spain, he grew up in Girona, and he started a school which reared many of the Talmudic sages and masters of the next generation in Barcelona. The Ramban's model, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides, could also be termed a Kabbalistic model. Okay, so we have the Gaonic model, the retrieval model. We have the Ramam, the Maimonides model, 
the cumulative model, which could, could be termed a philosophical model, and my Nachmanides is Kabbalistic for reasons which will be made clear as we, as we look at his model. Let's look at source number six. This is a pasuk, a verse in Deuteronomy. Al pi haTorah asher yerucha, ba'al mishpat asher yemulucha taseh leisasur min hadavar shayidulucha yeminu small. The Torah says, according to the Torah that they will teach, and the law that they will tell you, you shall do. Do not depart from what they tell you, neither right nor left. The Torah is speaking about the sages in your generation. If you have a question about halacha, go to that sage, ask him your question, your shaila. The answer that he gives you, you shall keep. Do not depart from it right or left. The Midrash on this verse says the following. Right or left, why that metaphor? Even if they tell you right is left and left is right, you should listen to them. Very puzzling statement. If the sages of the generation tell you that right is left and left is right, you should listen to them. What does that mean? That's very puzzling. Nachmanides says, this is in his commentary on the Torah, even he, if he, the judge of the great Sanhedrin, tells you of the right that it is le the left or about the left that it is the right, you must obey him. The purport is that even if you think in your heart that they are mistaken, and the matter is simple in your eyes, just as you know the difference between your right hand and your left, then you must still do as they command you. You are not to say, how can I permit myself to eat this real forbidden fat or execute this innocent man? Instead, you are to say, God, who enjoined the commandments, commanded that I perform all his commandments in accordance with all that they, who stand before him in the place that he shall choose, teach me to do. He gave me the Torah as taught by them. This idea is uncannily modern. Let me throw out a question. When you approach a text, does that text have a fixed meaning before your act of interpretation? Any text. It could be the text of the Torah, the text of uh, the Constitution. Does it have a fixed meaning before your act of interpretation? So for thousands of years, people thought, yes, what? Very modern argument. And the Ramban, Nachmanides, is making this argument um, almost a thousand years ago. So for thousands of years, people thought, of course, how could a text not have any meaning before you? Nachmanides is saying something that has antinomian implications. Nachmanides is saying that a text, before your act of interpretation, or at least when it comes to the Torah, doesn't have meaning. Who gives it its meaning? And this is authorized by Hashem from this Pasuk. The sages who interpret it. A text can be interpreted in a million ways. It's multivalent. There are so many different meanings that could, that could be attributed to it. The sages who interpret the Torah give it its meaning. They constitute the meaning of the text. This is a radical idea. Now, of course, there's parameters. There are many rules how they can interpret it. Can a subsequent generation go against the interpretation of a previous generation? But the kernel of his idea is that the text does not have a fixed meaning before the act of interpretation. And this is exactly the opposite of Maimonides' conception of the text of the Torah. Maimonides believed that the text of the Torah has a fixed meaning, not just a fixed one, but a clear and absolutely unambiguous meaning. That meaning was given down through the ages, and no one ever had any questions about that. Halachic activity is merely inferring and deriving and applying those, those verses and those principles. For Nachmanides, on the contrary, halachic activity has a retroactive, we retroject onto the text the halachic activity that we innovate. So let's look at source number seven. This is from the Ritva. His name is the Ritva, Rabbi Yom Tov Ashvili. He was a grand disciple of Nachmanides. So this kernel of Nachmanides was developed 
and understood in different ways by his students. We'll go through only one strain of thought of Nachmanides, uh, of his principle. He studied, Rabbi Yom Tov studied in Nachmanides' yeshiva in Barcelona, and we're gonna look at his commentary on Tractate Erevin. The Gemara says the following, for three years, Beishamai and Beisil disagreed. This is a famous Gemara. These said, the halach is in accordance with our opinion, obviously. And these said, the halach is in accordance with our opinion. Ultimately, a divine voice emerged and proclaimed both these and those are the words of the living God. Eilu ve'ilu Now, we're talking about an absolute contradiction between two opinions. Both these and those are the words of the living God. So Rabbi Yom Tov, the Ritva, is bothered. How is that possible? How could we have two contradictory opinions both being true? So let's look at source 7, the English on the bottom. These and these are the words of the living God. The French rabbis, he's talking about the Tosafists of blessed memory, asked how it were possible that both positions could be the words of the living God when one prohibits and the other permits. And they answered, when Moses ascended to heaven to receive the Torah, they showed him 49 reasons for prohibition and 49 reasons for permission concerning each rule. He asked God about this, and God answered that the matter will be given to the sages of Israel in each generation, and the ruling will be as they decide. Now, this is fascinating. For Nachmanides and his school, halachic tradition is exactly the opposite from Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud. For Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud, halacha was complete. All the answers were clear. Then there was a breakdown, and it became more loose and more shapeless as time went on. For Nachmanides, it's the opposite. Revelation was originally given in a way with many interpretations. It was multivalent. Controversy is embedded in Revelation. So these Jewish arguments that we're having, God said them at, at Sinai. And Moshe asked, what are we supposed to do? So Hashem said, halacha karabim, the halacha will follow the majority, but each interpretation technically is valid. So just to give an example, um, table salt is sodium chloride, I believe. It's common, we eat it all the time. Now if you isolate one of those elements, chloride, um, it could be poisonous, it could be fatal. You put it together with sodium, and it becomes something we dip our challah in every Shabbos. For the Ramban, for Nachmanides, for the Ritva, revelation is multifaceted. There are many different ways and many different interpretations of viewing something. With regard to the practical and pragmatic and, and conclusive halacha, we have to follow the majority interpretation. But that does not mean that another interpretation is not technically, theoretically valid and true. For Nachmanides, controversy is not necessarily a bad thing. For Maimonides and for Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud, it was a negative thing. For Nachmanides, it's an expression of the plurality of voices that the Torah has within it. Every Jew, Kabbalah teaches, has a source in the Torah, has his own chilek in the Torah, which means that he has the authority to interpret it and to give it meaning. What enables Nachmanides to make this argument? Nachmanides has an entirely different conception of revelation than Maimonides. Nachmanides, in the beginning of his commentary on the Torah, tells us that when we look at the text of Scripture, we see a string of words. What is the most basic unit of the text of Scripture for Nachmanides? It's not those words. For Nachmanides, it's the letter and its place in the sequence of those letters. For Nachmanides, the words are merely one facet of the Torah. 
the commas that appear in the text, they don't actually appear, but meaning the words as they are split up is the way we have received the Torah. But really, it's all a series of divine names. This is his Kabbalistic interpretation, which means that you could split up the words differently and it would be God's names. It would be an entirely different Torah. For Nachmanides, revelation is not like Maimonides would say philosophically, that it's almost a linguist, linguistic revelation where um, revelation comes into the Philosophically, he talks about the active intellect and then the imaginative faculty of the prophet, etc. It's a linguistic revelation for Nachmanides. It's a self-disclosure of God himself. Hashem, in giving us the Torah, did not give us merely halachic data, but his own self was inserted in the Torah. Divine names. Names are a container for the essence of something in Kabbalah. So Torah is a self-disclosure. And just like in Kabbalah, God is multifaceted, Obviously, he is a supreme unity in essence, but there are many spheros, so too there are many interpretations. This is what enables him to, to make this argument that the sages constitute the meaning of the text. Why would Hashem give the Torah in such a way? Why do you think God would give the Torah in such a way? According to Nachmanides, why would it be given in a way where the Jewish people should constitute the meaning of the text as time goes on? Okay. To make it livable. What else? Okay. To account for change. Okay, so the Maimonides could also account for change because we have axioms and then we could infer and apply to new situations. So to account for change, we, we don't need to say that we constitute, right? It doesn't have to be a retroactive halachic action, right? It could be a forward thinking halachic It doesn't have to constitute the meaning of the text retroactively. So, let's look at source number 10. And source 9 and source 10 are really there to show us how this idea, this constitutive model of the Nachmanides is not a, a radical model that's not mainstream. This is something that is espoused by prominent halachic decisors in contemporary times. The Rav Moshe Feinstein, one of the major halachic decisors of the 20th century, and the Tzosa Choshen, Rabbi Aryeh Heller, who was one of the foremost teachers of the analytical school of Jewish thought. So we have, in terms of halacha, practical halacha, Moshe Feinstein, and also one of the leaders of analytics. This is his book, the Ketos HaChoshen, is studied in every yeshiva. Also talks about this idea in both of their introductions to their works. So if we look at the Ketos HaChoshen, he mentions the following midrash. This is a famous midrash. When Hashem was trying to create the world, trying to create man, he asked the angel, should we create man? The angel split up into different groups. One group was the attribute of truth. Another, the attribute of kindness. Another, peace. He asked truth, should we create mankind? Truth said, absolutely not. The mankind is going to lie. God asked peace, should we create mankind? Said, absolutely not. Man is going to wage war. God asked kindness, and kindness responded, yes, man will do acts of kindness. What did Hashem do? The Midrash says, Hashem took truth and cast it to the ground. The angel said before Hashem, why do you cast away your seal? Truth is the seal of God. Why do you cast it away? The Medrash says Hashem quotes from King David, from Psalms, let truth spring up from the earth. Emes mi eretz titzmach, let truth spring up from the earth. Rabbi Aryeh Heller, in his introduction to Ketos HaChoshen, asks, what gives me the license to interpret the Torah? What gives me the license to innovate 
to originate new halakhic data? This medrash. God did not want the Torah to be merely ultimate objective and heavenly truth. Just like the world was given in an unfinished manner so that the Jewish people could perfect it with mitzvos, so too was the Torah given unfinished, so to speak, so that the Jewish people could constitute the meaning and also provide their own human input, let truth grow from the earth, a, an organic human intellect, a human truth that the sages put forth when they interpret the text. So when, when a posik or Rabbi Yileb Heller is originating a halachic thought, it does not have to be true, he says, by an ultimate standard of truth, a standard of truth that might be God's truth, but merely as much as the human intellect accompanied by faithful interpretation, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein adds, Yira Shemayim, awe of heaven, that means I approach the text like something holy, like something given to me from God, and I am very careful where I tread, but if I do so, and I interpret it with my mind, and I do the best I can, and I understand as much as I can, and I put forth the most complex arguments that I possibly can, that is the halakhic metric for truth. MS merits sits let truth grow from the ground. I have a question. Um, there's a, an MIT professor who's very famous for doing a whole study uh, on reality and how actually proves mathematically that people cannot know reality and truth. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Don Hoffman. Uh, there's a TED Talk, it's very famous, but uh, I'm wondering whether you know, that kind of goes along with that. What he proves is that human beings don't see things because they can't. They have a very limited vision, they're hearing. They're, There's the blind spot, the human eye. See the world. The, the, the world is, is, believe it or not, is, is, uh, is, is kind of shrouded for us. Fascinating. Yeah, it's really very interesting. So I, w I was going to actually talk to the same point that you brought up from the perspective of quantum physics. Right. Um, so we have a statement here from Werner Heisenberg. The idea of an objective real world whose smallest parts exist objectively in the same sense as stones or trees exist independently of whether or not we observe them is impossible. So, I mean, not that I'm an expert in quantum physics, but if that is true in physical reality, how much more so when it comes to halachic data and spiritual reality. Let's look at Nachmanides' main points. Multivalent revelation. Revelation has many meanings. Halachic discourse is the endeavor to constitute the meaning of that revelation, obviously within certain parameters and with the appropriate awe of heaven. Controversy is embedded in revelation itself. It's not a negative thing. The Aruch HaShulchan, who is a modern he says in the beginning of his text that someone who could swim in the sea of the Talmud and see all the different opinions, he will realize that they are pleasurable like the different notes in a song. So the plurality and the different voices coming together is a good thing for Nachmanides. And halach is a partnership between the Jewish people and God himself. Let's look at a critical analysis of all three models. The retrieval model. The model of the Geonim, Rabbi Avramim and Daud. Halacha is a transmission from Sinai. It's all purely divine. In order to say that, he has to posit a, a crisis in halachic transmission to account for controversy. That crisis is only in the details. We have clear halachic truth for, the, for Rabbi Avramim and Daud. Any halachic question has an answer. That answer was given long ago at Har Sinai. For Rabbi Avramim and Daud, halachic activity is piecing, piecing humpty dumpty back together again. 
We have the cumulative model, Maimonides, who's the opposite. Maimonides says that Re Revelation is a kernel of Allah data, clear, unambiguous, never forgotten, never debated. As the generations went on, we derived and inferred new information, new applications, new cases from that kernel of clear halakhic data. Both Maimonides and Rabbi Avram Ibn Dao would say controversy is a bad thing. They also, and this might be an advantage or a disadvantage, depending on what you think, they also believe in a clear, objective halakhic truth. Nachmanides says controversy is a good thing. Controversy is embedded in revelation. It's a result of the multivalent revelation that Torah is. But he has a subjective, somewhat subjective, halakhic truth. We don't need to aspire to the ultimate objective truth that comes from Shemayim, comes from heaven. We rather only need to aspire to the human truth that is organic to us and that we produce through awe of heaven and through stretching our minds to its limits when we approach a text. Emes Meret Sitzmach. Okay, let's go back to that first controversy in the Torah Shabbat Peh, when you lie down. How did this occur, according to each of these models? Let's try to apply it to a test case, take it to the lab as much as we can. For the retrieval model for Rabbi Avram and Dao, the answer is very simple. Bishach Hashem said it, God said it, and he said you should do it at 6.05 p.m. No, whatever he said. That answer was forgotten. Because it was forgotten, Rabbi Eliezer and the Chachamim now have an argument what was said. For the Maimonides, the answer, God didn't say what time. He wanted the sages to infer and to derive the time. And for the Nachmanides, B'Shach B'cha had within it all possible interpretations. It could mean the entire night. It could mean when you lie down. It is up to Rabbi Eliezer and the Chachamim to put forth their answer using their own reasoning, their own mind, what they think is, is, the, is the exact answer. Why do I find this particularly important? I myself um, learn halacha every day. And for me, the idea of approaching the Torah in this way is fascinating and inspiring. What it basically means is, is that, as Rashi says over here in Dvarim, each day the Torah should be to you as something new, as though you had received the commandments this very day for the first time. It's possible to learn Torah and to experience in that second a mini Harsinai. It is a conversation, a dialogue between you and the text, between what Hashem is telling you, between the principles that you're interacting with, between the information that you're interacting with, and your own mind, your own interpretation, your own world outlook. And that dialogue produces a truth, which is a human truth, an organic truth that you put forth, but is also based on divine sources. The truth should grow from the ground. So thank you very much. I hope that this inspires and um, maybe makes Torah study in the future a little bit more meaningful. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.